Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock everywhere, episode 233, The World's First Sherlockian Scholar. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello there, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, are you ready for some scholarship today? I am really ready for some scholarship. For the last couple of days, I've just been reading soup can labels and cereal boxes. I need informed thought, discovery, speculation. Exploration, exposition, abstraction, any of those things. Well, if it's abstraction you're looking for, you've come to the right place. We are nothing if not abstract. So uh, we have a delightful show for you today. Lots in store. Uh, I think we're going to start out with a little bit of uh, listener mail, some news, and then an interview with Vincent W. Wright, who's here to talk about a recent discovery of early Sherlockian scholarship. We will wrap it up with our quiz, uh, the winner from last episode's canonical couplet, and another quiz to help keep you going into the next fortnight. So stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, if you'd like the show notes for this episode, they are available at ihose.co slash ihose233, all lowercase. That'll take you directly to the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website. There you can find all kinds of updates, not only about what we're talking about in the show today, but you can also sign up for emails there to be notified when we post on the blog there, because we do tend to put material in uh, in between episodes just to keep you abreast of some of the developments in the world of Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts. So that is the place to be. And of course, you have the option there of signing up via email and connecting with us on all of our social networks. If you'd like to get in touch with us for any reason, our email address is comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. Well, Bert, I think it's... Um, it's appropriate for us to start out with a little bit of listener mail. We didn't manage to squeeze this in 
uh, in our last episode. Remember when we talked to Chuck Kovacic about uh, his 221B Baker Street sitting room out in L.A.? Um, but it did come in as a result of the previous episode where we did the tribute to Mike Whalen. Uh, it is a message from Madeline Quinones. So let's get right to her comment. Hi, Scott. Hi, Bert. This is Madeline Quinones sort of calling in from St. Jim, Michigan. Happy New Year! Mostly, I wanted to let you guys know that your last episode made me cry. Because I, I, I never got the chance to meet Mike Whalen. And I really wish I could have, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful for that episode because at least those of us who didn't get the chance to know him could know a little more about him. So I really appreciate that. But yeah, it's just really sad. Scott, I, I hear that uh, you're not in New York City this weekend because this is it, BSI weekend. And uh, my condolences, I am not either. Originally, I was wanting to be this year to, to make this my, my first uh, BSI weekend, or rather first in person. Yeah, that just didn't work out. So uh, really hoping for next year to be better, <laughs> aren't we all? And uh, hope to see you guys there. Meantime, I'm celebrating virtually, as are uh, quite a few other. It's really great that this community just really latched on to the virtual stuff because that's just allowed, that's allowed for so much fellowship around the world, and it's great. And I um, can't wait for the virtual festivities to properly get started. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, still hoping for in-person next year. You know, thank you again for all the work that you guys do. And um, good luck to you and the podcast in this coming year. And good luck to us all. And God bless. Thanks again. Bye. Well, what a treat that was. Thank you so much, Madeline. Um, my goodness, there's there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, the first thing, um, thank you for your comments about the tribute to Mike Whalen. Um, he meant a lot to, certainly to us, but to a lot of people, as you heard, and even more than were represented on that episode. Um, and in, in as much as um, our episodes make people cry regularly for different reasons, um, it was it was uh, heartening to hear that uh, this touched you in that way. Yes, it really did. It's wonderful, Madeline, to hear your voice. And that was part of uh, Scott's inspiration, I think, for the interviews and that episode about Mike Whalen. You know, you could talk about somebody and think about all the biographies that have written about been written about people. You know, you could talk about them. Uh, for and write about them, you know, for pages and pages and paragraphs and paragraphs. But hearing people find a couple of anecdotes in their memory, tell you straight from the heart what really touched them about somebody, that not only does it sketch out a personality like Mike, but it's it's just a different level of communication. And it's just very gratifying to hear your reaction. You know, Mike 
we we think Mike's life is just a great example. And that's that's one of the nice things about the human race. You know, we're very imitative. And so if people can pick up a couple of things about Mike's enthusiasms, about his outlook, about his approach to other people and try to apply them themselves, that would be great. And and when we talk about next year, uh, Madeline, we're looking both looking forward to seeing you at the Baker Street Irregulars weekend in 2023. That'll be great. It will. I, I'm looking forward to it myself. And uh, as Madeline said, there, there were a lot of people who enjoyed things virtually. Um, there, there's a new Sherlockian scion out there called the Legion of Zoom. And uh, in order to qualify for membership, I think one has to attend 17 or more online Sherlockian meetings. So there are people who are bouncing around attending meetings of all these science societies that they would not have otherwise experienced. And they're viewing the world of Sherlock Holmes through many different eyes. Is there any truth to the rumor that membership in the Legion of Zoom needs to be renewed every 45 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you pay your dues, I think they let you stay on for a whole year. Oh, with up wow. to a hundred of your friends, something like that. No, um, no, no, no dues, no, uh, no renewal necessary. Um, oh, that is the wonder. No time limit. Huh? I know, not in this case. Yeah. And yeah. also uh, during the BSI weekend, I know Brad Kefauver, uh put together a, an enterprising uh, exercise, a, a bit of a six-hour pub night uh, called the Dangling Prussians, and they enjoyed uh, six hours, as I say, worth of. Uh, virtual merriment on uh, the Friday evening of the BSI weekend. So a lot of folks who couldn't attend the BSI weekend, who were normally uh, would be in attendance, uh, went to this dangling Prussian meeting. And uh, I, I heard it was a raucous good time. Some 60 or so people on that uh, that call. So it's nice. Um, and also, if uh, folks haven't seen it yet, we will share a link to this in the show notes. But uh, the Washington Post ran a piece in the style section by Michael Deirda, who, of course, is the books editor for the Washington Post, Pulitzer Prize winner, and Baker Street Irregular. He wrote a column called Sherlock Holmes Through the Eyes of an Ultimate Fan, and he takes uh, the uninitiated through what a BSI weekend entails from his perspective, the, the kinds of things that he attended. So it's a great eyewitness account of what a BSI weekend, a gathering of a whole bunch of Sherlockians might be like in New York City. Well, it isn't often here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere that we get a chance to bring you breaking news, but now is that time. Traffic, weather, sports, on the threes, it's all here. Everything you need to know to become as updated as you need in Sherlock Holmes News. We're pleased to have back with us Vincent W. Wright from Indianapolis, who writes the historical Sherlock blog. He's here with us to describe an exciting and groundbreaking discovery in the world of Sherlock Holmes research. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are we today? Welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you, sir. Welcome back. Welcome back. Well, you were with us on episode 144 talking Uh about your historical Sherlock blog and the whole 
pursuit of Sherlockian chronologies, which is a fascinating subse- subsection of uh, Sherlockiana. Um, but what is it that brings you back here this time, Vincent? Well, gentlemen, uh, one of the pleasures of research is that every once in a while, not very often, every once in a while, you get to find something that just knocks your socks off. And I found something, although it didn't knock my socks off at first, it took somebody else pointing it out to me that it was sock knock worthy. Um, it turned out to be pretty amazing. It looks like it knocked your beard off, too. <laughs> yeah. For you well, folks I, uh, listening at home, we're, we're recording this on, uh, on, on Zoom, but um, we're only giving you the audio portion to spare you. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty frightening. I uh, I have not been without facial hair for almost 25 years. Wow. Um, and I had to do it because of the type of mask I'm wearing at work. Um, it has to fit snugly against my face. So uh, last night I grabbed the clippers and just took care of everything. Good for you. Well, uh, you. this discovery was beard worthy, sock knock worthy. Um, <laughs> right. Tell us about it. It was... Um, it was uh, about a month and a half ago. I was uh, sitting in my in my office doing research for something in uh, Boscombe Valley Mystery, and I was getting nowhere. It had been a couple of hours, and it was that time of night where you start thinking about, you know, dinner and, and getting the dogs ready and going to bed and all these things. On a whim, I typed in to uh, Google Books, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and I started filtering through the pages, which I've done so many times in the, in the last decade. Something jumped out at me. It was uh, it was a Cornell magazine, actually, uh, Cornell University magazine. I clicked on it. I found the article that was uh, that was about Holmes. It was called "The Life of Sherlock Holmes." I read it. I transferred it into a Word document. It contained the word chronology and contained a little bit about chronology at the end of it. So I sent it to a fellow Sherlockian and chronologist. Brad Kefauver and said, hey, I found this. I really don't know what to do with it. What do you think? It was he who got back to me with the, you know, holy cow uh, reaction. And from that point on, my life has not been the same. That That is amazing. Now, for, for those who aren't familiar with the book search capability mm-hmm. on Google, this is a project that Google has undertaken basically to digitize uh, the world's library. That is correct. So it's, and it's an ongoing process. I mean, it's not like it was already indexed and now they're, you know, it's done. So you can potentially keep dipping your toe back in there with the Sherlock Holmes search term and potentially discover new and different things. You will never be done with with finding anything on that site. And the homes, if you type in homes, especially if you put it in quotation marks, you will have enough to keep you busy for years and years and years. And the fun thing is, is like you said, it's an ongoing project, so they don't even have everything on there yet. In fact, some of the finds that I made about this paper, about this find, actually came from other sites that were more complete. Oh, talk about that. Well, when when I found this article, the only thing listed as far as an author was the initials H-E-W. Now, that's, uh, there, there's every single thing that I'm talking about has its own little subset of, 
of, of, of rabbit holes to go down. But ultimately, when we discovered what the HEW stood for, when I discovered, when well, actually somebody else discovered what it stood for, but when we finally found out what HEW stood for, the research took me to a site called uh, the Hathi Trust. I think, I think it's how you pronounce it. They had on uh, their site um, all of the Cornell University publications since time began. Every single one of them, page by page in high definition. And it was there that I found my ultimate, ultimate find with, with this paper. And the one that uh, caused me to say, okay, let's publish this to the world. So tell us a little bit about what you discovered about, well, the, the magazine, about, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more about the article and who H.E.W. possibly was. Certainly. So the first thing that I did after I discovered the initials and this started to become a thing when the emails uh, back and forth between a number of Sherlockians started flying uh, is I, I, I dipped back into everything I could find on Cornell and Google Books, and I came across the name Howard Edward Williams. Now, Mr. Williams had nothing about him that was uh, specifically exciting. There was nothing about him that said that he was a writer of any kind uh, or that he was a Sherlockian or that he had any kind of a literary bend of any kind. I continued to research him. I found out where he lived. I found out when he got married. I found out when he died, where he's buried, but nothing about this man stood out and said, this is your, this is your candidate. If it had turned out to be him, we would have never known it because there's nothing to indicate that Howard Edward Williams was the author. It was actually a couple of days after the find, the, the, the initial find, Les Klinger is the one who popped up with something from another uh, 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 Cornell publication, an alumni publication, that contained an obituary for a Helen Elizabeth Wilson. Well, so I started researching her because Mr. Williams just wasn't panning out. And the more I looked, and the more I looked, the better it got. And it just got better and better and better. So I am indebted to Les for finding that name because it took me to places I'd never even dreamed of going. You know, the, it, it almost strikes me as something right out of Black Peter, where you had the <laughs> initials on the uh, yes. on the tobacco pouch. Yes, yes. Yeah, I kind of thought of that, too. Yeah, <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Now, before we get into Miss Wilson, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about where we are in time here up until up until this discovery what did we think was the earliest bit of sherlockian scholarship what we had and this is what i had forgotten about when i found this article and sent it uh sent it to uh, brad there's a in the original annotated uh and in the in the clinger annotated there's a there's a brief bit that talks about the earliest known scholarship um, and it turns out to have been an, an, a, a letter written by a man named Frank Sidgwick in 1902. Um, that is the earliest indication that we had. Now, I made sure to check both copies of the annotated to make sure that still was the actual, that was still the thing. And it is. So what we, what this article 
what I found out with this article is that it was from 1898. By dates, it beats the Frank Sidgwick piece by three years and three months. Wow. Which is pretty astounding. That really is. Now, um, when, when you when you when you continue to scratch the surface here, and and you mm-hmm. kind of it's like archaeology, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you don't really know what's underneath the dirt until you get a little bit of uh, bone exposed or a fossil exposed, and then you dig a little deeper and brush very carefully, et cetera. Right. Um, ha- has anything else around this kind of time zone started to appear? As a matter of fact, uh, once I published this to the world and told everybody what it was that had been found and, 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 and got Miss Wilson's name out into our community, uh, Sherlock came by the name of uh, Daniel Friedman actually come up with an article by a man named William Aspinwall Bradley from uh, Columbia University that predated my paper by two years. Now, and, and, and to toot my own horn a little bit here, just a few nights ago, I actually found another article myself from 1896 that is a recap of an article that was printed in a newspaper called The Clarion, which was started by a man named Robert Blatchford in 1891 in England. And it is a non-Fan Holmes type of article now, let me tell you. So what I found was actually a recap of the original article. So I went and found the original article. The very first sentence, Mr. Blatchford tells you he is not a fan of Sherlock Holmes. You read through the whole thing, you get to the end, he tells you again, I am not a fan of Sherlock Holmes. So my article that I found was basically, the the, the original article was somebody comparing Holmes to Pose Dupin and Gaborio's Lacoque. So is the William Aspinwall Bradley article. It's exactly the same thing. Both of those articles are about comparing Holmes to previous detectives. Uh. Now, you have to know something about the stories and you have to know something about Holmes to write them. So technically, yes, they are scholarship to a point. They are simply comparing Holmes to these other two detectives and saying he's just he's just a cheap copy is what he is. Miss Wilson's article is playing the game. It's yeah, scholarship. Yeah. yeah, it's I don't want to take anything away from those other two articles because this is exactly what I wanted to happen when I put this out to the world and said, go find it. It's out there. But the articles are vastly different in their content. The Miss Wilson article is, is definitely playing the game. Well, I think that's the point. So have we found, because there have been lots of observations, including those made by Conan Doyle himself, about the comparison between Sherlock Holmes and, mm-hmm. and Dupin and, that's, and, how, that's... and, and how much Doyle loved Poe. Right. But have, has, so has there been anything earlier that anyone has found that really addresses playing the game, which I think is, is the real point? No, not so far. Hmm. So what's interesting to me is you look at um you look at at this this piece which was in the Cornell magazine mm-hmm. Frank Sidgwick's piece which was in uh the Cambridge Review mm-hmm. uh this other piece that you mentioned from Columbia their their publication mm-hmm. and of course uh, Father Ronald Knox who is widely considered the forefather of Sherlockian scholarship from Oxford what is it about academia and 
uh, and this pursuit of the game. And, you know, it's it's amazing because as much research as I do, it never occurred to me that, um, you know, checking out these these university publications would be a great place to go looking. It was actually Mr. Kefauver again who said, you know, with this find and a couple of others, maybe we should go mining these these publications because there might be something there. Well, as it turns out, there is and there might be more. You just never know. And that's that's the best part of research. Well, that's true. But also, you know, there's nothing really special about academia because what I, the, the academic environment, particularly around this time, it's a group of people who are spending more time rather than less time looking at literature. It's, but it's a group of people who have been trained and know how to write. And it's a group of people who can publish. So, so it's indicative of the fact, you know, and this was it's sort of Christopher Morley all over again because Morley was born in 1890, you know, for this community of early people, early Sherlockians, later on in the 1930s, you know, this this to them was nostalgia. Right. But but it was just fun. And it's and it's part of that same inspiration we have today in the cons and in the cosplay and thinking about these people mm-hmm. as real people. And but that and that's the glimmer. That's the lovely part about the playing the game aspect of it. This is the earliest little candle we've been able to find. Right, right. And someone it, who says, you know, he's real. You know, what? But but as how does this work? You know, if he's right. Real? And you hit on something there. It's uh, the the article itself sort of stands alone uh, with the information that I found about uh, Miss Wilson. She actually does reference Holmes one other time in a, in a story she wrote the year before that was published uh, with Cornell, but. I've read other things that she's published and basically she was just she was just a literary fan. So this was just a stopover for her, but it was an important stopover for us. Um so you're right. It's 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 these these young folks writing about literature at the time and at the time this was a big deal. Um and even though she was an American student, she was reading these things and uh, she was enjoying them enough to put pen to paper about it and and come up with her own conclusions and her own thoughts. And not to put too fine a point on it, let's remember that when Sherlockians organized in 1934 under Christopher Morley's uh, brainchild as the Baker Street Irregulars, it was a small group at first, but eventually it, it grew. And this August, well, now August, uh, body took until 19... 19- 91 to become coeducational. And here we have a woman writing discernibly the earliest Sherlockian material. And, and think again to uh, the, the, the big protest at the BSI dinner in 1968, where the girls from, uh, from New Haven stood outside of, of uh, Kavanaugh's trying to get in. Uh, to, to, to protest this all-male group when they were as deserving as anyone from early on. Well, that's something that that uh, that come up very quickly after all of this. Uh, I talked to quite a few Sherlockians without actually telling them what I had found. I was I was, you know, I was vague about my details, but I needed advice on on a couple of things. And I talked to I talked to, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen different Sherlockian pals, and some of them, you know, were women. And I was telling them that, look, this find might do better with a group that is strongly female. 
And again, I wasn't telling them anything, but I think, you know, uh-huh. if, if you're smart enough, you get the, you get the idea. Um, and a couple others after I published all of this contacted me and said, this is, you know, this is really, this is really going to throw a booger in the beans because, uh, you know, here we have a young lady before this all male thing came along and uh, it may really shake up a couple of things. Now, the point here that I would make, although I love that, 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 that expression, kind of remember booger in the beans. I like that a lot. Um, is two things. One is it's not a woman. This is the woman. There you go. There you go. Second point I would make is that we owe Sherlock Holmes to a woman, to a woman named, um, I don't know if I can remember her complete name, Mary Jean Hickling Gwynn. And the one sentence summary of all of this is that when a study in Scarlet got to Lippincott, it got to the desk of an editor named Colson Kernahan, who didn't feel that he was experienced in fiction. And he had married Mary Jean Hickling Gwynn. And she was a writer, a popular writer of romance novels and things like that. And he, he documented this, and this has been published in a story or in an essay that he wrote about, you know, the discovery of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and he gave, it, gave the manuscript to her and said, what do you think about this? And she came back and said, you know, and she actually had studied medicine briefly at the University of London. She said, I'll tell you two things about this. Three things about this, she said. First of all, I think it's written by a doctor. Second of all, you really should publish it. And third, this guy is a natural storyteller. <laughs> and so Colson Kernahan says, great, let's give him 25 pounds for studying Scarlet. <laughs> so we owe uh, Sherlock Holmes to a woman. It is amazing how that sort of thing happens. I can think of two other examples right off the top of my head. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll go a little bit more recent times here. Uh, Stephen King's first novel that he ever published, which was Carrie, he actually threw in the trash can. It was his wife who dug it out and taped it back together and sent it to a publisher. And then if you think about, uh, if you want to go to a different, a different medium with Elvis, it was actually the secretary at the Memphis Recording Studio, which later becomes Sun, Sun Recordings, who said, why don't you call the kid with the sideburns? So these things happen, you know, and the, the, these these amazing discoveries, these amazing events are they're being done. They're happening because of women. And it's fantastic. Well, why don't we take this quick moment to reflect on the important women in our lives and on this quick message from our sponsor. One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back, the 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review, edited by Steve Doyle, art direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, Anne-Margaret Lewis, Steve Hawkinsmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, and more. 118 pages about Sherlock Holmes. The illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork, Irene Adler drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review 
at wessexpress.com. All right, we are back talking with Vincent Wright about this marvelous discovery, this this paper by Helen E. Williams. Was it? Yeah, Wilson. 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 Hel- Helen Elizabeth Wilson from right. 1898 from mm-hmm. uh, the Cornell Magazine, The Life of Sherlock Holmes. So uh, we we didn't really know all that much about the life of Sherlock Holmes up until that point. He wasn't a, uh, let's, uh, to, to coin a phrase, say, a fully developed character. I mean, the Conan Doyle estate didn't try suing her at any point along this, did they? Um, what, what, what was she able to determine from the, the scant writings at the time, and remind us how many there were, and what was she able to uh, discern about timelines? We only had about two dozen stories at the time uh, that this that this paper was was written and published. Um, so she didn't have a whole lot to go on. And and let's keep in mind the paper itself is only eleven paragraphs long. It's nine hundred and sixty words. So she crams a lot into this little bitty article. But right up front, she mentions an interest in the chronology of the cases, and then at the end of the article. She actually goes into a rough chronology of her own, saying, well, if this story happened here, then this one happened after it, and this one happened after that. It's not a full timeline. It's, 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 it's only partial, and there's nothing you can really write down. But she puts some thought into it. But the most amazing thing is that on the first page, she actually talks about the year that Holmes was born. And she puts in there uh, the line that 1855 works as well as anything. Now, I've looked at this and I've pondered it and I was doing some research about it a couple of nights ago, trying to figure out how she landed on 1855. Now, at the time, we didn't have a lot of the things that we use now or have used to try and determine what year Holmes was born. She had only half, less than half of what we now have for the canon. So she could have used the dates in the Gloria Scott, but they are confusing and they lead you almost nowhere if you try and make sense of it because they're they're so muddled and so so um, so confusing. There's a there's a mention in Boscombe Valley Mystery where Holmes calls uh, him and Watson he and Watson middle aged men. Now you could use that and say, okay, well he was about thirty five at the time. But there's nothing in Boscombe Valley Mystery that really tells you solidly what year it occurs. So somehow this young lady, with almost no information whatsoever, manages to land almost exactly where other scholars landed 50 years later. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the probably, to me, the most amazing part about this, how accurate she was, because it wasn't until His Last Bow was published in mm-hmm. 1917, and, and, of course, that took place in 1914, mm-hmm. where Holmes was described as a tall, gaunt man of 60. Right. And that's... That is the measuring stick that all right. Sherlockians use. You go, all right, you're 60 in 1914, therefore you were born in 1854. And here Miss Wilson 
is only one year off. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's like tri- triangulating a star and being off by you know like a million miles or something. But the astronomers are like, that's in the neighborhood. That's really close. <laughs> right. It's like, exactly right. That's just yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It really is. So I I, uh, I, I was I, I did. I was going to put a part, an article in our, our Chronologist uh, Guild newsletter about this, but I simply can't nail down exactly what she used to come up with that year. And I just, I love the fact that I can't. I think it's, I think it's fascinating that uh, whatever method she used is still a mystery to us. Now, you, you just hinted at something there. I want to make sure we land on it because I don't mm-hmm. want to miss the opportunity here. You mentioned the Chronologist Guild newsletter. I think this mm-hmm. is something new from the time we spoke to you last. What is that? Uh, the uh, the Chronologist Guild is um, uh, a Sherlockian society ded- dedicated strictly to chronology, chronologists, uh, or as one chronologist calls it, cr- chronologist. I don't remember the exact term, but anyway, it's specifically for chronologists. Um, and our newsletter is called Timeline. And it's uh, it's our it's our publication for the Chronologist Guild. Um, it's uh, basically a small group of people who like to talk about chronology. And actually, it may be a complete group of people who like to talk about chronology because it, it's a pretty small crowd. You know, so I think there's only about 15 people in it. Um, but that's more than we thought we'd ever get when we started this whole thing. That's uh, the idea for the for the for the group was actually mine a few years ago, but I just didn't have the time or the energy to devote to it. And then when you know three grandkids come along, my time was completely taken up. So Brad Kefauver is actually the one who took uh, the torch and ran with it, and then he come up with the newsletter, and you know here we go. So uh, that's our that's our Shalakian chronologist society. Well, you know, our seven listeners may be interested. <laughs> you may find your, your membership almost doubling at that point. Oh, fantastic. Does the Chronologists Guild newsletter regularly get issued on time? Uh, every month. Oh, okay. Every month. Yeah. I, I saw However, what you were doing there, not, not always. I see you're going. Not always the same date every month. I'll say that. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, like I said before in, in, in episode 144, that, you know, even if we decided to have a meeting of any kind, it would never happen because we could never agree on a date. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there it is again. So, right. I love that. Well, you know, it's interesting. Just a couple of episodes after yours, I think it was on episode 146, we spoke with um, Nick Martorelli. And in that episode, he was talking about he, – he looked at the, the the development of the canon and what people knew along the way and the way they responded to the character and the stories because it was very much a work in progress. It wasn't a, the complete canon. So in other words, when, when the memoirs were done, we didn't know that the Hound of the Baskervilles was around the corner. We didn't know if Sherlock Holmes was going to come back from the dead. So right. we – in that time in Miss Wilson's 1898 would have had to make our conclusions, make our decisions based on the completeness of the stories back Mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. All 25 or 26 of them. Yeah. Almost nothing to go on. And uh, she still, she still took a whack at it. It's pretty fascinating. What a, what a poorer world we would live in 
if it were just those 26 stories that we had. I agree with you completely. Yes. Even though some of the later stories don't hold up quite as well. They are different. They're unique. They're, they, they have their own flavor, but they're, they're still family. And we still love them. <laughs> and we're, we're sitting here because of them. Yes. Yeah. So as you keep digging, as, mm-hmm. as Google Books uh, indexes more, and I, I, I love the idea of or the notion that academic publications have a lot of these because free time, printing press, studious students, etc. Um, but as as you think about this, wh- how early do you think we're going to find Sherlockian scholarship? I mean, will we find Sherlockian scholars pre eighteen eighty seven? Well, pre eighteen eighty seven, probably not. But uh, that would that would be a neat trick, wouldn't it? Uh, and then that's that's interesting though because I actually uh, uh, was looking at the term Sherlockian not long ago and wondering when it was first used. Well, as it turns out, the term Sherlockian has been used for a couple of centuries, long before Sherlock Holmes existed. But it was used to reference, uh, I believe, it was a, a Catholic. Uh, bishop named Thomas Sherlock, I think. So the term Sherlockian, I actually found all the way back, I think, to 1832 or something like that. So the term's been around for a while, but it didn't refer to Sherlock Holmes. And then the debate became, are the term Sherlockian, when it does relate to Sherlock Holmes, is it talking about methods or the man? So there you have a division. Which way is it used first and which way is it used correctly? And it's kind of fun to do that. But... um uh, I'm sorry, I completely forgot what the question was. Um, <laughs> no, we we're talking no, about no. how early See, do you think tangents? you'll find scholarship. Yeah. Well, with with the with the find of Miss Wilson's paper, one of the things that I really wanted to happen when I when I finally put this out into the world was for other people to go looking for more things. Um, you know, it was it was Carl Sagan who said there's something wonderful waiting to be found somewhere or something like that. So. People started to look, and before you know it, we had another candidate, uh, a Sherlockian by the name of uh, Daniel Friedman, found an article that predated the Wilson article by two years. It's an article that is an anti-Holmes article. Um, it's it's more of a comparing Holmes to Poe's Dupin, and it's really not the same type of article. And then I found one just last week that was from 1896 that was the same kind of thing. It was, it was a recap of a larger article from 1896 in a a newspaper called the Clarion, which was started by a man named Robert Blatchford in 1891 in the UK. His is an anti Holmes completely article. The very first sentence tells you he does not like Sherlock Holmes. The very last sentence tells you he does not like mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes. And this article is huge. It's about half the front page of a newspaper. And he does nothing but run Holmes down and say how he's just a cheap copy of Poe's Auguste Dupin and Gaborio's uh, Major Lacoque. So, yeah, but you know, they're you're very you, different. You look at that though, and people are. People are inspired enough by Sherlock Holmes where they recognize the notoriety of Sherlock Holmes to be spurred on to yes. write about him. I mean, why would yes. you waste ink on something you hate? It, it reminds me of that classic scene 
in the classic movie, 1996's classic movie, uh, Howard Stern's Private Parts, um, where they're, they're looking at the, uh, the survey instrument as to their listenership. They said the average Howard Stern fan listens for an hour and a half a day. Reason most commonly given, they want to hear what he's going to say next. The average Stern hater listens for two and a half hours a day. The most common reason given, they want to hear what he's going to say next. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's perfect. That's a great so analogy. I think you find the same thing with Sherlock Holmes. For, for some, he may have been divisive, but he was so divisive that he spurred them on to want to write something about him. Oh, sure. And, and uh, you know, I was I was talking to uh, to uh, Brad about this very thing, saying, look, this paper exists. This article exists. There has to be something before it because you can go just about anywhere after 1887 and you're going to find Holmes being mentioned in publications all around the world. Surely there had to be some sentence thrown in about scholarship or, 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 or deduction or an induction of some kind. So there's got to be something more than this can't be the first article. And he's, he told me, well, if it's out there, let somebody find it and tell us about it. Until then, we don't know about it. We're going to celebrate this. But yeah, yeah there's people have been writing about it since day one. It's, just, it's pretty amazing. Sometimes they liked him. Sometimes they didn't. In this case, this young lady did. She loved it. Yeah, I think I think the important point is playing the game. You know, there have been lots of commentary from the earliest days, including Doyle's own, about Poe and how much he was inspired by Poe. But it's it's the first instance of playing the game, him being a real person. When was he born? Did right. this story happen before that story? You know, putting these cases in chronological order. And it's that spirit, you know, that continues today so effectively, which is why we're all here. I agree. And uh, one of the one of the things that's curious about the um, the the paper that Daniel Friedman found, it's written by a man named uh, William Aspinwall Bradley, um, and it's from October. It's October 1897, something like that, 1896. He goes through the same motions with saying that Holmes is just a cheap copy of Poe's Dupin, and he gives a bunch of examples of it. So he had to have read the stories. He had to have known something. But at the very end, he gives Holmes credit and says, Holmes has something that I have not seen anywhere else, his ability to read a person like a book the second that he sees them. That is, you know, amazing to me. Otherwise, the article is, is you know, again, non non fan of Holmes completely and and when you think about it that ability to read a person like a book was ripped from the headlines i mean that was something that conan doyle witnessed right. at the university of edinburgh when he had right. professor joseph bell as his medical school professor that's what he did another university boy it just keeps <laughs> uh, just keeps adding up doesn't it i guess so i guess yeah. it does well, uh, so so Ms. Wilson uh, undertook this this early part of the game, this this scholarship, this chronology, timeline, etc. Um, and and you mentioned that she was a, a lover of literature. Uh, where did her journey take her? Did she come back to more Sherlockian scholarship later in her in her life? What what was her career like? What I found out about uh, Miss Wilson. Uh, one of the one of the first things I did is I started to try and find if there were any living relatives of this young lady. And I found one uh, living in Colorado. Uh, I contacted her, uh, explained who I was, what my interest was, why I was bothering her. 
you know, interrupting her life. And she was more than thrilled to help me. The problem was that Miss um, Wilson was a very distant relative of hers. Now, when I say very, rel- very distant, and I hope I get this right, Miss Wilson was the sister-in-law of the mother-in-law of her great-grandmother's brother. I am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate. What's that make us? Absolutely nothing. Um, So there's probably not even any blood, but she was more than happy to try and find something, uh, which she ultimately failed to do because of the the, the shortness of time that we had. But I found out that... um, Miss uh, Miss Wilson wrote other short stories, and they were published all across the country. Uh, she wrote other articles uh, while she was at Cornell. She went on to become a teacher in um, in Bath, New York. Um, she lived a very short life, unfortunately. She died in 1902, November 1902, uh, of typhoid fever. Now, it is fun to speculate that she might have been reading Hound of the Baskervilles. The first part had come out in 1901. The second part had just been published when she died. It would have been, it's fun to, it's fun to speculate that, that she was reading these and maybe she was going to add to, uh, to what she had done before. And who knows, maybe somewhere in a trunk, somewhere in an attic, uh, there's, there's her stuff is in a box and there's a rough draft of her working on something, but her life was cut very short. So she never really got to have a great life after that. Uh, she never, she didn't marry. Uh, she didn't have any children. So there's no other avenues there to research. Um, it just all come to a, a stop because of typhoid fever in 1902. Boy, I, I hope she managed to hang on until that final issue of the strand came out. Can you imagine would, yeah. being on your deathbed with like the cliffhanger of the Hound of the Baskervilles and not knowing how it ended? <laughs> I mean, she would have had to have haunted Conan Doyle through mediums throughout the ages. <laughs> Yeah, somebody eventually will come up with one of those spirit photographs of her hovering over Conan Doyle's shoulder. <laughs> she was him the on the shoulder. fairy. I knew it. <laughs> oh. But, yeah, she lived a very short life, so there just wasn't a whole lot to find, unfortunately. Now, in my, in my research about her, I do know exactly uh, where she lived when she went to Cornell. I found the address, found a picture of the house. I know exactly what route she took every day to, to class, uh, what bridge she crossed. Uh, I know where she lived uh, in Bath before she died. I know where she's buried. I have a picture of her tombstone. Um, I found out just about everything you can find out about somebody who died 120 years ago um, and, and didn't have a big family. So um, it, you know, I, think, I think we've milked this cow as far as we can because <laughs> there's just nothing left. There's just no milk left. You know, there's... There's nothing else to find. Uh, somebody did come up with the idea of uh, collecting all of the short stories together um, that she had written. And I thought, well, that's kind of a clever idea. You know, there weren't there not a whole lot of them and putting them together in a, in a pamphlet form or a book form or something probably wouldn't be a popular thing. But it would be a fitting thing, I think, to, uh, to honor her memory. Maybe something I work on in the future. You'd, you'd have at least 15 readers for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> 15 plus your seven, and we're really starting to, we're starting to add up here, yeah. Vincent, it's a, it's a great discovery, and it's, uh, it's just wonderful, you know, to find through happenstance like this. You know, the magic of discovering something like this, as you say, knocks your socks off. But it also adds so much to um, – 
our hobby and to our understanding of what those times were like in the it 1890s does. and the feeling people had about Sherlock Holmes. It's, right. There was a love true. there already. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, um, when, when this was, when this was found, I'll, I hate saying when I found this, but I did. And I just, I just happened to be the, the, the yuts who come across it on a public website. You know, I just happened to be the one, um, I knew that I wanted the community, the hobby to know about this. I knew I wanted everybody to know about her and what she had done and what she had accomplished. I was perfectly happy to sit in the background and do absolutely nothing with my name attached to it. Just so long as people understood who she was and what you she know. had accomplished. You, you know, oh. Vincent, you're, you're so self-effacing. Well, you remind me of the guy who found the Rosetta stone who said, you know, I'm just a guy with the shovel. We <laughs> <laughs> has all this sand. I, I was digging. Yeah. I didn't know it would be a big deal. I was content, you know, that's, to stay behind in the caravan. And that's exactly right. Like I said before, had it not been for the word chronology in this article and the chronology <laughs> aspect of it, I would have filed it away and never thought about it again. I mean, I have tens of thousands of articles filed away, and this just would have been another one of them. Until one day when I'm 70 years old and, and, and falling asleep in my soup, and it occurs to me, I've got this article. I never even considered how important it was. Now I'm going to tell the world about it. But yeah. I was lucky enough to be able to do so now. Um, and, and, and the word got out and the response has just been absolutely amazing. And Bert, was it Mr. Rosetta that discovered the uh, Rosetta stone? (laughs) No, see, this is, this is why he should have claimed it because then it could have been the, whatever his name was. I think that's. Yeah. His name probably wasn't like Bob Rosetta or anything It was Lieutenant Pierre Francois Bouchard. Oh, could have been the well, Bouchard every, stone. Everybody knows that. It would have been the Bouchard <laughs> right. boulder, right? <laughs> right you know, and right. they said they said to him at the time, Frank, sit down. Stop <laughs> making such a big deal out of it. Frank, yes. Right. What, what's help, the big deal? Frank, it's a couple Frank of cartoons. What, you know. Frank, Frank, get over here and help us shoot the nose off the Sphinx. <laughs> you know, we're busy. We're busy playing with rocks over there. Well, uh, Vincent, we we thank you for allowing us to play in your sandbox. See what I did there? Uh, uh, there again, it is, yeah. <laughs> well, archaeology, once again. Yes. Um, thank you for allowing us to play in your sandbox. Uh, it is fascinating. And even though Bert and I aren't chronologists uh, by trade or by profession, uh, we certainly have a keen interest in it. And we love what you're doing at Historical Sherlock. We love what you've done with this early route of discovery. And I think there's much more to be mined there. This is like this is like a Sherlockian gold rush. I, I sure hope there is. And I'm going to tell you this, I will not stop looking because that is, these finds make, you know, make 10 years of looking for something like this well worth it. I'm, if it takes me another 10, I'm in because research is, is delicious and it's fun, and it is it is it is my life. So uh, if I find anything else, I'll be sure to give you a call because uh, uh, I'm I'm I love the response that people have had to Miss Wilson. So I hope that kind of energy can be created again sometime soon. That's great. Thanks so much. You bet. 
it's another great conversation. And here, here's Vincent, you know, with his own particular avenue in the world of Sherlock Holmes, he and others, chronology, making this kind of a discovery. It just shows you, you know, when you think you know everything. Well, we, no, no, I should rephrase that. Nobody thinks they know everything. But, you know, you think this has been so well-traveled that, that Father Knox, the early scholarship, uh, you know, that's been pretty well looked at. And you get a discovery like this. It's like a firecracker. It is it, it, like an M80 going off. I mean, it's not one of those little firecrackers. This is a big deal. This is really a big deal. I'm so glad that Vincent got the chance to, uh, to, to publish it on his site and to share this great news with uh, lots of other people. I've seen folks all across uh, the Internet, social media and whatnot, getting very excited about it, as they rightfully should. So yeah. I, I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah. And I should correct something that I said about Mary Jean Hickling Gwynn, uh, who Mary Jean Hickley Gwynn Bettany, who we whom we do owe the discovery of Sherlock Holmes too, I believe. Um, her husband at the time was a guy named George Bettany, and he was the chief editor for Ward Locke, of course. And it was on the strength of her recommendation that a study in Scarlet became the chief item in Beaton's Christmas Annual in 1887. George Bettany died, and her second husband was Colson Kernahan, and it was Kernahan who wrote this up uh, in an essay um, about the, her role in the early discovery of Sherlock Holmes. Ah, well, thank you for that clarification, because I heard you say her name, and then you said Lippincott's. <laughs> I'm yes. like, well, Lippincott's, that was Lippincott's. a sign of four. Man, and... was just, yeah, what the hell is that? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm glad yeah. we got that straightened out. Or I'm else... going to have to start paying attention to what I'm saying. No, no. And no one else does. Why should you? <laughs> um, I live my life that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, someday the chronologists are going to come across I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, and they're going to have a devil of a time trying to figure everything out. Oh, they will, but uh, they well, they, we need to find the Time Lords and get them involved before the chronologists get involved. Stick with us. We'll be back after this brief word from our sponsor. MX Publishing recently launched the MX Audio Collection, an app with a series of interviews and other audio content, beginning with Lee Child talking about Reacher and Sherlock. There are many more interviews lined up for 2022, including Jeffrey Hatcher, screenwriter for Mr. Holmes, Otto Penzler, the founder of The Mysterious Bookshop and Mysterious Press, authors like Bonnie McBird and Nicholas Meyer, and yours truly, Scott Monty and Burt Walder from I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Every month, MX will be adding in at least four new Sherlock Holmes stories and some more theater performances. There'll be more from the deductionist, Ben Cardall, too. You can read more about the app and sign up for the MX Audio Collection at ihose.co slash mxaudio. That's all lowercase, ihose.co slash mxaudio. There's a monthly subscription option and an annual subscription option with a significant discount. And iHose listeners get an additional 25% off of any subscription you choose just by using the code IHOSE when checking out. A percentage of the proceeds of the app go to Undershaw, the school for children with learning disabilities. It was the former home of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, of course, wrote many of the Sherlock Holmes stories 
while he lived there. So go to ihose.co slash mxaudio and use the code ihose today for the MX Audio Collection. You know what that means, friends. It is time for everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right. It's Canonical Couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and you have to identify the Sherlock Holmes story to which we are referring. The last time we were around these parts, we gave you this clue. The schoolboy was a golden child, always in first place. A weary vigil Holmes endured, much like the stoner case. Well, Bert, I am I am bracing myself. <laughs> do you know, do you know which Sherlock Holmes story we are referring to? Oh, yes, that's very easy. That is the one <clears throat> about the woman who's hiding in a professor's study. Because she lost a priceless, pa- a priceless pair of Louis XIV's trousers in the snow in Paris. That's the case Watson called La Golden Pince Neige. Well, uh, <laughs> a valiant try, as always. Prince Valiant. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. It was not... The no. golden Pince-Neige. No, it was. Oh, it was. So uh, it was close. the Naval Treaty. The Naval that Treaty. That was going to be my second guess. Yeah. Well, you know, closing in on it, so that's not too bad. Uh, in this case, uh, oh, of course, our friend Eric Decker's also wrote in. He said, "I think I've got it. If I'm not mistaken, it's the story about the time that Doctor Watson got a piece of candy stuck up his nose, and he complained of smelling peppermint." For days afterwards. It's the story of the nasal sweetie, which <laughs> which seems to be an awfully weird story. So I think it's probably more likely the naval treaty. I would have thought that Watson's infatuation with a um, rather strident contralto would have been a better setup for the nasal sweetie. <laughs> you would think. You would think. <laughs> Well, <laughs> uh, well, let's uh, let's give it a give it a go here and see if we can reach into the uh, into the spinning drum and uh, pull out a name at random. In fact, let's let's bring out the prize wheel and give it a big spin. Watching it go around here, coming to rest on number. 22, lucky 22 for 2022. That's nice. And that corresponds to, why, it's 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 Eric Deckers. Yay. Oh, Eric, I'm so glad all of your cleverness is paying off in spades here. We will have something out of the iHose vaults for you. Um, can't guarantee that it'll be something uh, three-dimensional. It may be something paper-based. But uh, whatever it is, we'll make sure that it is something to your liking. Now, let's get ourselves on to this episode's canonical couplet clue. Here we go. A day's work ruined. Then Watson was enthralled. One way to make a fortune. Keep a medico 
on call. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email address to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are correct and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. And I think keeping in the spirit of historical Sherlock, we will have a piece of historical Sherlockian uh, memorabilia, uh, perhaps a publication uh, that a piece of Sherlockian scholarship appeared in as our prize. So good luck with that, everyone. Oh, that's a nice idea. I like that. Well, yeah, I'm just trying to remain thematically uh, faithful, shall we say, to be consistent in our efforts here. Mm. So. Well, and you've got so many duplicate copies of those original Collier's magazines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you could just fold one up a couple of times and pop it into the post. <laughs> now that I think about it, when we had Charles Prepolek on and, and uh, interviewed him last year about his Strand magazine collection, we uh, we should have given away his collection as the uh, canonical <laughs> couplet prize. What a lost opportunity. Do you know, do you know the other day I saw on someone has online, maybe you've seen this, maybe I'm probably because I'm so, you know, in general behind, behind, um, behind on these sorts of things. Somebody online is selling a complete run of all of the strands, just the Sherlock Holmes stories for something like $85,000. Goodness. Well, uh, they recently had an auction, uh, for all of those. And I think, the BSI Trust had put them up for auction. That may have been that may have been the one. No, this was by a dealer somewhere. Has oh, it? by a dealer. Oh. How did that auction conclude? Were they sold? I believe so. Well, maybe this is maybe this dealer is the one who bought them and is is now oh, flipping them. Turned them around. Yeah, huh. yeah, and still able to make a tidy profit. Hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, speaking of collections, we have all kinds of links uh, up on. The I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website, because uh, Glenn Maranker, who we talked to on episode 227, was just interviewed by Nicholas Basbanes at the Grolier Club the other evening, and uh, they had a live stream presentation. We have it on uh, as, as an embedded YouTube video, plus links to all of the press that the collection has been getting now that it has been opened, the, the exhibition, I should say. Uh, has been getting uh, from the Grolier Club. So it's wonderful to see all of that finally coming to life. It is. It is. And Mike Durda, in the piece you mentioned in the Washington Post, mentions, of course, Glenn's collection with a wonderful, wonderful description. But, you know, this is such a great moment in the world of Sherlock Holmes, not just because it's an opportunity to see these objects, but because of the messages that Glenn has come back to again and again and again, which is that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to get an extraordinary amount of enjoyment out of collecting. And there still is an enormous opportunity to begin collecting in the Sherlockian world. You know, just as he discovered in the 1970s, you don't need to be J.P. Morgan. You don't need, you know, uh, enormous amounts of money to begin collecting. And there's a lot. That's one of the reasons why the 221B Objects exhibition is so interesting, because he's got things like pirate editions and other things. And and that conversation with Nick, Briz- Nick Brasbanes is so interesting because it delves into the psychology 
of collecting. And um, it's just very informative. So I hope it generates, and I know Glenn hopes it generates a new a new wave of uh, Sherlockian collectors. And there's nothing like seeing those original manuscripts in Conan Doyle's own neat handwriting and the very few edits that he made. And if anything, in this day and age, seeing the transcript of The Dancing Men, which was really Wordle for 1895. (laughs) So there you have it. Well, until the next time we see you back here, this is the completely wordled Scott Monty. And I'm the annotated Bert Wolder. And together we say... The Games of Foot. foot. (laughs) (laughs) The The Games of Foot. I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes.